one into the night. Jimmy Rollins is going to try for three. Here he comes. In the air, down the right field line. Way back there. Out of RBI, hit by Mitchie Poole. Here's the throw to the plate. It's in the air. He is. Oh! The 0-2 what is going on everybody welcome back to another episode of the phillies nation podcast i'm your host ty dobbert we're back still in the midst of a lockout but we you know we had to record another episode of the phillies nation podcast talk a little bit about the game even when nothing is really going on outside of labor negotiations we wanted to mix it up a little on this episode a little different than we've been doing over the past few weeks and few episodes so as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Ackerman. Nathan, you ready to get into what we have in store today? Very ready. This will be cool. You know, I, um, I, I, I just finished finals, Ty, and everything came to a screeching halt as soon as that happened, much like the Major League Baseball offseason. So as you said, we decided to change things up. This will be a cool episode. Yeah, like, like Nathan mentioned, uh, we have a cool episode in store. We have a guest for you guys a minor league baseball player, Albertus Barber, the fourth on with us, a Phillies minor league pitcher. Albertus, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm so good, guys. Uh, I'm just happy to be here. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Albertus Fought Barber, the fourth. I'm almost guaranteed the only person in the universe with that name. Um, and I'm here to crush souls and have a good time. So anything you guys got for me, let's go ahead and do this. Yeah, Albertus, definitely, you know, if you follow him on Twitter, you get to see him, you know, you got to see him pitch in his first year in the minor leagues, you would know he's kind of a kind of known for his personality He's an eccentric guy, loves playing baseball, loves having fun. And I think that's kind of what we're going to get into on this episode. So Albertus, you told a little bit about who you are, but why don't you tell tell people how you kind of got to the Phillies organization, uh, kind of your path there just a little bit of how it's gone for you so far. Okay. So um, my, my path was a a very interesting one relatively. Right. Um, So I went through my senior year of high school injured. I went through every year of college, either suffering an injury or bouncing back from an injury. And I never played a healthy season of college baseball. Uh, I played because I wanted to win for the boys, but I never played a healthy or good season. Right. So um, I actually ended up dropping out the, my redshirt junior year of college and deciding that I was going to sell everything that I owned and go train at this training facility called Driveline Baseball uh, up in the Seattle area because I wanted answers. Um, you know, I wanted to know why I had a 4,000 ERA every single time I went into a game. It was just so unsatisfying. It, it was like I was facing Giancarlo Stanton every single time I faced a player, you know. And um, so I actually went up to Driveline. I trained for a year and a half. Uh, A guy named Zach Friedman, incredible guy, one of our scouts, ended up actually uh, coming and watching me pitch for the first time. And that was the first time I had really, really had a scout with interest. You know, not just a guy that they're sending around to go, but basically just, you know, fluff everyone up. And uh, what happened was is I was really sick. And I mean, I had uh, I had walking pneumonia and I felt terrible. So I cranked about five, six cup of coffee, went in, uh, started pitching, ended up puking my brains out halfway through the bullpen. Uh, decided the only logical thing to do at that point was to yell puke and rally as loud as I can and then just get right back after it. I mean, what else was I going to do? Right. Like when it's time to win, it's time to win. Um and that was kind of where my my love for the Phillies began, right? Because I don't know, something just felt right. Something just felt right about Philadelphia. And I used to visualize the stadium all the time uh, of where I would play in the big leagues. And I never paid attention to Major League Baseball stadiums, which is absurd. I know I'm a professional baseball player and I love baseball. It's my life, but I never really paid attention to that. Uh, And the more that I started to look into the Phillies, the more that I realized that whole time I had been visualizing that stadium um, and not on purpose. And so that fueled 
my romantic romanticization for the Phillies even more. Um, and we found out that I was draft eligible and they wanted to sign me as a free agent. But since we found out that I was draft eligible, we had to wait until after the draft for me to be presented a contract. Um, and so I ended up having one more little hiccup at driveline before I went to go play. But then the Phillies signed me on a contract after I got that healthy. Uh, and then I went and had one of the greatest times of my life. Like it, it was a dream come true by all means. And so now after all the adversity and roadblocks we've all faced the past two years, we're here doing this pretty awesome podcast with these two awesome guys. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there, especially the pretty awesome podcast, but the pretty awesome guys part. But can you take, can you take me through the puke and around? rally uh bullpen that you threw i mean when that happened when you're throwing your bullpen and then you just start puking i mean what are they saying are they like this guy's an absolute freak he's just going to keep on throwing the, like what take me through give me a give me a minute by minute through the puke and rally bullpen okay so um for just about everybody in there that had known me for longer than i'd say like four days it was i don't think that they were shocked at all um they were more or less all like, ah, oh, you know, whatever. That's Burtis just being Burtis. Um, but our scout, Zach Friedman, actually looked at me like I was dying uh, and was scared to even shake my hand, which was pretty hilarious. But I threw a couple pitches, and, I, and I'm warming up to face my first hitter. And it's like 94, 96. And my stomach just starts quivering, right? And at this point, I know I'm going to puke. Like, I know I'm going to throw up. It was a fight for my life for a good six, seven minutes of me not trying to throw up. So I'm throwing hard. I feel like I got to throw up. I'm throwing harder because my body is in a fight or flight, life or death mechanism. And uh, finally, I just couldn't do it anymore. I was breathing. So I go over to the trash can, pull it aside, and just started projectile vomiting. And I mean absurd amounts of projectile vomiting. It was absolutely disgusting. Um, we have a video of it somewhere, and I really hope that video resurfaces because, uh, first of all, that would be an incredible video to have when I make my <laughs> debut. But, man, it was, it was terrifying. Ty, can we awesome. attach the video along with the podcast? On yeah, Twitter, if he, on, if he can dig it up on the, on the website, you got to oh, find it. I got to find it. See, that's the thing is I want this video, dude. Like that is the crown jewel of, of the story, right? Like you can visualize it, but until you see me throwing up this projectile vomit at 98 miles per hour, like it doesn't really do it. It's full justice. So I'll try and get it for you guys because uh, I definitely want it for myself also. I might have to stick with the with the, with the visualizing. What was faster, like the projectile vomiting or the fastballs you were throwing? Oh, dude, the projectile vomit had more RPMs and more velo than my fastballs by like three times that day. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. <laughs> so, all right. So you mentioned before this this bullpen, this storied bullpen, you get signed after the draft and then you know, you're playing in the Phillies organization for a little bit. Can you can you take us through like what that felt like to pitch in the minor leagues a little bit? And then, you know, everyone, like you mentioned, everyone knows how the last two years or so has gone. 2020, there's no minor league season. And then into 2021, you hit some more roadblocks. Just how's that that path kind of kind of been for you? Oh, I'll tell you, um, the first time that I stepped onto a minor league field. So I hadn't played in a year and a half um, at this point, I think closer to two years. And I remember just the first time I stepped on that field, it felt like I could go Super Saiyan 4,000. Like my adrenaline was pumping through my veins. And I mean, there was probably only 15 people in the stands. You know how the GCL games are. It's nothing crazy. Like it's a little backyard, backyard sandlot game for however many fans are there. Um, and going into pro ball, I mean, you only hear the worst side of things, right? Nobody ever talks about the good side of minor league baseball. So 
you go into it with these expectations that it's going to be really so much worse than it actually is. Um, but I tell you what, the one thing that is that I can't even begin to explain to people is when you step on a field and, and I felt this for the first time at Lakewood, but when you step on a field with 15,000 people, 10,000 people watching you, um, you feel like a superhuman legitimately. Like, you feel like you can do anything. And, and I think I'm only speaking for myself when it comes to this, because some people feel nervous, but that adrenaline rush was, I can't even describe it in words. Um, it was really life-changing. Um, and once you get settled to that, once you, once you get accustomed to that feeling, uh, nothing can ever replicate it. But anyways, I went through the minors and the one thing that I noticed that we did better than every other team was the Phillies were very respectful of the access that they gave to players to certain commodities and things like we got smoothies. Oh my gosh. We got smoothies. We got a hotel room. We got this food every single day, all three meals. Um, and it was like being pampered, honestly, like, yeah, the paycheck is this and that, but I mean, just to have all three meals ready for you every single day, you get to come to the field every single day. And at the end of the day, you have a bed to lay your head on. Um, that's all you need. And, and you get these long bus rides and you have people playing 13 different kinds of music for no reason at four in the morning while another person's playing cards and then somebody's waking up and screaming at those people playing cards because they're trying to sleep. And then you got to like stop fist fight and then everybody just goes to bed. Like it is the most interesting environment with so many different types of people that I've ever seen. And I honestly think that's probably the biggest beauty of baseball. Um, and then, as you know, 2020 coronavirus, we come back. Uh, about a week before spring training of 2021, uh, my arm started feeling a little bit worse than normal, but not necessarily terrible. And I was still throwing around mid nine, so I didn't think anything was wrong. But we ended up going to have me get an X-ray and an MRI, and found out that uh, I basically needed full elbow reconstruction. And uh, and why not? You know, like I've. I faced every other possible hurdle that I could face to achieve what I wanted at this point. So it only seemed logical to me that I would have potentially, you know, what people like to believe the biggest roadblock of my career thrown at me. Uh, and what I view this as in all reality was a free opportunity for me to fix everything that I could ever dream of within a year. And so now we're here. Uh, now we're rebuilding and, going to become better than we've ever been before. How did this injury, you know, you mentioned in college, you were never really healthy. Like how was it different and the same dealing with this one versus the last ones you said before you used to kind of fight through injuries in college to, you know, play for your teammates, but this one, because of, you know, other circumstances, you felt like you could take the time to really, you know, like rebuild, like how do you, how do you, how have they just been different and then similar? Well, um, for starters, you know, it, it wasn't just stem and ice as the treatment. Um, you're not just going to the training room to get stem and ice. And then you go to a doctor who honestly, most of the time has no idea what they're talking about and, and, and rehabbing injuries in college can be a nightmare, but when you're with a billion dollar organization that loves its players, um, it's significantly different because you have access to everything. And, and everybody was always like, Albertus, uh, just so you know, this is going to be different than any other injury that you've faced before. And I was like, no guys, like it's not, it's just not, it's the same concept I'm rehabbing, but I have access to everything now. And they'd be like, Oh, you don't understand. You never been there and it's like well yeah i have guys i mean i have been there multiple times about half of my career um and so really the only difference now is that 
I'm not rushing myself to get ready uh, because I have time. Um, you know, I just got a brand new arm. I, that's absurd to me. I basically just got all the damage that I have done to my arm for the past 25 years of my life removed. And so for some reason in baseball, uh, there's this big stigma behind injuries and how when you're injured, it could be to where they never come back. But if we look at the most elite javelin throwers and some of the most elite throwers of any kind in the world, those guys don't reach their prime shape until they've undergone uh, multiple surgeries, multiple injuries, right? Um, and so I would say that if anything, this is substantially easier than any injury that I've had to deal with thus far. When you talk about how many times you've been injured, like you said, pretty much every single year dating back to what senior year of high school, what like what kept you going throughout all of that? Was it what you were just talking about where, you know, everybody, the, the most elite throwers of any sport of any kind go through something like that? Was that what kept you at it? Or was there was there ever a moment where you were like, this is this is kind of a lot, you know? Yeah, that's a great question, by the way. I love that question. Um, and, and I'm going to answer this honestly, because I think people need to hear this. And so the one thing that keeps me going is ever since I was four or five years old, it's always been my dream to become a big leaguer and use the platform to help start building infrastructure in countries that don't have clean water or access to anything. That's been my dream since I was four years old. and so. The thing that keeps me going is that it's not about me, you know. I mean, I know that it's my name on this, this, and this, but this is not about me. Um, this is for the millions and billions of lives that I could have an opportunity to impact with this platform. And so that's where the energy comes from, right? That's where the passion and the desire and the, if you get in my way, I'm going to absolutely destroy you comes from because uh, I'm doing it for more than myself. And so when I tend to, let's say that if I were to go, oh man, you know, this is really hard. Well, it's like, yeah, if I'm doing it for me, it, it's pretty difficult because it's for me. And, and if this was only for me, I would have quit a long time ago. I promise guys, like the adversity that I have faced, 99.9% uh, .9 of people would have just given up. But the one thing that has kept me going is that opportunity to really make a change in something that I'm very passionate about. And, and that is what keeps propelling me to want to destroy people and rip their heads off because I'm not fighting for just my life. I'm fighting for my family's life and I'm fighting for their family's life. And so I have an army of people behind me and those people's clock is ticking. And so I have to make sure that I'm not doing anything to possibly step on what I could be doing for those people. Because at the end of the day, like regardless of what I do, if I'm a 15 big year, big league, 15 year, big league hall of famer, um, that's all going to burn. Ultimately, if you give that 200 years, 300 years, people aren't going to remember my name, but if I can use this for something greater to help significant amounts of people, then, that lasts forever, regardless of if my name is on it or not. What What do you think is like? What do you What do you think athletes and big leaguers and professional players in other sports? You said you wanted to be able to build a platform to make change and help people. Like, what do you think the the platform that athletes have today? Like, what are they capable of in terms of making the change that you would like to see? Anything, right? I mean, with any sport, when you are put on this pedestal, millions of people are watching. And for some sports, for, for more international sports, billions of people could be watching. And so this platform it is an opportunity for you to reach a significant amount of people that, it, I mean, if, if I were just walking down the street going, hey, I'm Alberta's fought Barbara the Fourth and yelling at people about these things, uh, there'd be a lot of hesitancy behind people to support me for specific things because I haven't established myself in any given field. 
uh, I haven't done this, whatever the subconscious or conscious bias may be towards, right? But when you're when you have this platform, when you're a professional athlete and so many people look up to you, you don't only get to impact the current generation and what's going on. Uh, you have people who are going to follow in your footsteps. You're going to have people that worship and love you more than your own family. And so when you are a person who utilizes this platform for good and pushing things in the right direction, you're changing the world one day at a time. And, and I think that that's very important if you're an athlete in this position, because I mean, what else is the platform for, right? Like, yeah, sports, but sports is, sports is fantastic. But at the end of the day, man, like, we got to be helping people. I want to ask too, I think that's a, I think it's a unique perspective when you talk about battling injuries and persevering through, through all of that. Um, because like you're saying, it wasn't about yourself. I think, um, I, I think that's admirable. I think one of the other things that is also unique about you in your path throughout baseball is while you're with driveline, you took a job as a janitor, cleaning toilets, cleaning bathrooms, all that kind of stuff. Can you, can you talk about that? What that experience was, was like, um, what, what role that's played in your whole career journey in the context of everything else that you've already talked about? Yeah. Um, so I took a job as a janitor slash gym ops person in driveline. Uh, and, it, and if you know me, you know that I'm a little bit off my rocker. So the gym ops title kind of got removed because they didn't really want me playing with power tools. It would have ended up in a stepbrothers type situation, you know? So they, they went ahead and they gave me this job. And I tell you what, after you train for four, five, six hours, and then you go clean an entire gym and toilet for three, four hours, uh, it, it turns you into a man. Um, and I had always worked construction and, and other types of labor jobs before, but uh, working as a janitor to me was like the icing on the cake, you know, because I know that I'm a really good baseball player. Uh, and I know that I can be a very good baseball player, not because of anything, but because I'll sacrifice everything and crush anyone who gets in my way. Right. But being a janitor was challenging because, I mean, you could be the best player in the gym. And afterwards, when you're done, uh, you got to go clean somebody who completely missed the toilet while taking the number two stuff off the ground. Right. Uh, you're cleaning the toilets, you're mopping the floor, you're sweeping the gyms. And, and so it solidifies the fact that you just never want to do anything else. You just don't. Like, at, you know for a fact that you don't want to be doing that. And don't get me wrong, like, if you're a janitor, first of all, I tip my hat to you because you're an absolute legend, um, seriously. And, and you deserve the utmost respect, but that's not what I want to do. And so I would go and I'd train and then I'd clean and I'd be there for like eight, nine, 10 hours. Uh, and then I would go home and my bed was a broken futon in the kitchen. Um, so it was, it was not the greatest living situation to say the least, but I took that as an opportunity uh, to better myself, uh, to look at myself as a man and go, okay, if I really want to be great at what I'm doing in baseball, then I need to make sure that I'm also doing great in what I do for janitorial work because I don't want to do that. And so that gradually helped push me even farther to where I snapped even more because I was like, man, everything besides playing baseball sucks for me. Honestly, I could not see myself doing anything else besides being involved with this beautiful game. And uh, I, sorry, I, I paused because I think back of all these memories and all the stuff that I had to do and just like a dude would completely just, dude, I'm, I'm not kidding you guys. Somebody pooped on the ground. Like legitimately, somebody pooped on the ground and I had to go clean it up. And we're all, we're all throwing 85 plus at this point in time. So some completely 
capable dude just ran into the bathroom and just decided to take a dump on the ground. And then uh, that was a big part too, because I mean, I'm a mean guy sometimes. And so I had to really work on my patience too. Uh, and that taught me a lot of life lessons. And, and for that, I am forever in drive, driveline's debt because they paid me. I got to pay off my training and I got to learn infinite amounts of information from all of them. You think that helped you like doing some of the hard work stuff you said, you know, minor leagues, some people can talk about a lot of the negatives, which are, which are there some of the conditions, but um, do you think you were more prepared for that? Having done like some of the hard work for driveline and then you could focus more on the good things when you made it into minor league baseball. Oh yeah. Ty. I mean, you put it perfectly there. That was incredible. Like, that was exactly what it did. Uh, that and then the broken futon in a kitchen, right? Being upgraded to a Holiday Inn, man, that's like flying first class for the first time. I tell you what, you're you're riding a high that I can't even explain. And so my whole focus, like you said, when I went to go play minor league baseball was to have fun. And inevitably, I think that's what led me to more success than other people too was I wasn't worried about anything i was just having a good time then go, going into like that that year 2019 i believe it was right your your first season as a pro right yes so what was that like you make it into into the minors like midway through that season you work your way up to lakewood like what was that adjustment like uh on the field you talked about some of the off the field things um, and the living style. What was it like on the field to make that adjustment and playing against actual professionals for the first time? Now, honestly, this is going to sound asinine, but it was way easier. Uh, it was way easier than anything that I had ever done. And and granted, I was facing younger kids, and so uh, I should have done what I what I did. But in terms of adjustments, really, the only adjustment that I had to make was. Every time a ball was hit, it wasn't going to be an error versus where I played, man, everything was free game. Like people could be camped underneath pop outs and, and they would, they would just drop them. So it got significantly easier. My teammates uh, were all focused on the same goals. We all wanted to win. And it was so much more fun because when you go out on the mound, when you play professional baseball, you can trust your whole field. Um, versus when you're playing in Oklahoma and, you know, not everyone is of that elite caliber. Uh, it's way different. And not to mention another thing that was beautiful is these ballparks were actually large. All the ballparks that I played at in college, minus three or four. I mean, you're playing at a field that's 300 down the lines with small fences and the wind blows out at 27 miles per hour almost every game. And so legitimately, like you can hit a pop-up that would have landed in the infield and it'll blow that thing out. Uh, and so you end up giving up 38 home runs in a game. So just being able to go out there, have fun and, and work on things that mattered versus the amount of eyewash that we do in college. Uh, it was a change. Everything was more focused. We had, we had better tools, better utilities. Uh, we had better drills, better coaching. And so, honestly, it, it, was, it was not hard at all. After two or three games of throwing in the Gulf Coast League, um, everything just became normalized again, which was – it's still just nuts looking back at all of it. I have two really quick things here um, about some things you mentioned in college. One, what were some like the eyewash things or like, you know, the nonsense things you think you focused too much on in college ball? And then were there any like really ridiculous fields you played on when you were playing college ball in Oklahoma? Like some of these small college fields I know can be, you said like how they're small, but are anything like with really weird quirks about it or anything like that? Any, any memories from that? Oh yeah. Um, so to answer the first question, um, geez, man, what, what great questions. Um, I'm going to answer the second one first, actually, because 
the I'll forget this if I don't, but we would play at fields. I'm not joking. We would play at fields where left field would be flat and center field would be flat. And then all of right field would go upwards. So you're <laughs> running up hills to get to these balls. And then there's like an extended out square part of the fence for no reason. I mean, legitimately, there's no way an engineer designed any of these fields. Like <laughs> they kind of just threw up fences and wherever they landed, they landed. Um, and that was all of the time. I mean, the dugouts were garbage 99% of the time. Um, and there's like three people at the game and they're all parents of the people that are there. And so really it's just like scrimmages 24 seven. There's no real crowds or anything. It's just people grinding for wins. And then as far as I watch, I mean, in all reality, the whole college experience besides me growing as a man for baseball was very eyewash. I mean, you run miles upon miles every single day. Like you're going to go compete for track in the Olympics. Uh, you do drills that, I mean, I don't even know if people were doing them 130 years ago. They're so inefficient. And, and you just do all these things that don't actually make you a better pitcher. Nobody really used technology. Um, biomechanics was basically a made-up word. It, it, really, the only thing you got was uh, mental toughness, mental toughness from running, which is not real, and then just a bunch of made-up stuff that was supposed to make people better. I mean, uh, I think my favorite thing that we did, though, which this could be considered eyewash, but at my junior college, Northeastern Oklahoma, uh, one of the things that did actually make me into a man was we had to do this thing after we would work out our legs where we would do a leg day and then we would go to the pool. And we had this coach named Coach Strack, and he's a legend. But we would go to the pool and we would have to tread water for 45 minutes uh, while passing a 15 pound brick around our head. We were doing actual buds training. like. And um, I remember one day we were just like, hey, coach, you know, what, uh, what, what if we're going to drown? And he was like, ah, there's a lifeguard. You'll be good. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and so for 45 minutes, dude, you are legitimately fighting to stay alive. Seriously, because I've never treaded water. I didn't know what was going on, dude. I'm just like looking around, trying to figure it out, making sure I Google everything to make it easier in between sessions. And we do that every Tuesday, Thursday. And right after we would finish those 45 minutes of, of, uh, of treading water, which we had to restart if anybody touched the sides of the pool because they thought they were going to die, we would go straight into swimming laps and racing for 30 minutes. And so to me, I took that time to really hone in my ability to, all right, when I'm dead and I feel terrible, I'm still going to be a killer. Like I'm going to beat every single one of these guys. I'm going to beat them at the races. I'm going to beat them at everything. Um, and so that could be considered, I guess, somewhat I watched, but I would say that uh, it brainwashed me into being more of a killer than I already was. When you talk about fences that are, what 300 feet down the left or right field line but 27 degree wind sounds like you should give yourself some slack if it feels like you're always facing John Carlos Stanton but when you went into driveline and you said you know why is my ERA in the four thousands like you said or why does it feel like I'm always facing John Carlo what did they say what did they say why did they say or what did they say about why that's happening what were some of the the tips and tricks that they gave you well, uh, to put it in simplified terms, I just sucked, man. <laughs> I was just bad. Um, and, and I mean, like, bad, bad. Like, and I had no off speed. Uh, I didn't really have much control until my last year when I threw with a fractured arm, which was actually when, ironically, I developed all of my control. Um, but my off speed just weren't good. I wasn't using my fastball correctly. I have a significantly high vertical break profile and I was throwing at people's knees the whole time. And my whole college career, I would accidentally let one slip and it'd be up towards their neck or their chest and everybody would swing under it. But I never understood the feedback of why that was happening. I just thought that they messed up. Um, 
and that I messed up too and got lucky. And so the combination of not using my fastball properly, uh, not throwing significantly hard, and then having really no off speed that were elite, uh, just all didn't work out very well. And that was really the biggest change that I made at driveline. It's not that I necessarily threw crazy hard from there. I, I mean, I came in and sat 95 for my first bullpen. But the thing that was so insane was just being able to take this technology and build out an arsenal of exactly what I want and understanding exactly how it's going to play off of each other. And then at that point, it's, it's so much different because you know exactly what you have. You know exactly where to put it. You can go look at hitter swings and read how you need to pitch that person. And then you can build out a plan in 15 seconds on how to attack these people rather than just being like, oh, yeah, you know, like, yeah, fastball goes like this, slider goes like this, curveball drops. Um, you, you have a full in-depth understanding. And so that was the part that completely changed my career because I went from having a one great arsenal to some of my pitches were in, in the upper 50s and 60s, like 55, 60, 65 grade pitches. And that made my life so much easier. What was it? What was it like to realize, like going in there, like, oh, I, I suck. Like you said, that's what you said that you suck. I was like, oh, I sucked. What was that like? Oh, it was awesome because, you know, this whole time I'm just like, man, like I'm pretty good, but I guess I'm just doing something wrong. But then you walk in there, and then you see all these things that you can do. And you start to look at all of these things that you don't understand. And, and then you have this realization and you're like, okay, well, one, I am stupid, legitimately. I have no idea what is going on. And then two, you're like, well, if I don't have any idea what's going on, uh, well, that would definitely explain why I'm bad. And so that was huge for me because that meant that I had a significant amount of room to grow versus if I just would have went there and they would have been like, yeah, man, like you're pretty good. Well, then it's just like, well, then I might as well stop now because I don't think a 4,000 ERA is by any means good. And so that realization was uh, – it was very, very refreshing, to say the least. Can I ask about the, the crushing souls mentality that you, that you talked about? And uh, I forget some of the other I, – I feel like stomping on their heads or th- some, some of that stuff. Uh, what does that feel like? Like if I'm in the box – facing you um you know apart from the fact that i can't even come close to touching 95 what how do i feel my soul being crushed when you're 60 and a half feet away uh, i think you'll feel it to be honest uh, so there's two albertuses uh there's this albertus which is a very nice person and and honestly it's somewhat enjoyable to talk to right but then there's the other side of me um and that other side of me is me getting out all of the frustrations in my life. Um, And so when I flip that switch uh, and it's time to go, it's, it's basically me fighting you for your life. Like one of us is leaving here, but I'm trying to make sure that when I face you, I tear you apart so much that you don't even want to play baseball again. And, um, and you can see it in my eyes too. If you take a look into my eyes, when I get into that mode, you can kind of sense that there's a little bit of insanity there. And that's because I'm letting it out of the cage in all reality. Like uh, I've had to, to really take a step back in my life because Albertus used to always be that guy. Albertus used to always be a nut job um, by all means of the word nut job. And So I've slowly had to learn to push that guy back because, I mean, I can't just be running around Walmart screaming like I'm about to go PR on a pull down, you know, like people are going to look at me funny. But um, it's been a good thing because when I do draw that guy back for a day or two days or, or a couple hours, but then I let that guy out of the cage. It's a lot more intense. Um, and so really, if you do face me, uh, I think you'll get right away like 
This isn't a game anymore. I'm not playing you for fun. This is me trying to provide food for me, my family, and millions of other people. And uh, if you try and take that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choke slam you. Just plain and simple. Like, it's not going to be a good time at all. If anybody doubts that, by the way, go check out his Twitter profile picture. You'll feel your soul being crushed, as I feel my soul being crushed. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big yeller. I like yelling. <laughs> do you yell? Do you yell on the mound a lot? Oh, I actually, I don't say anything at all um, because the way that I've always seen it is, um, if I, I kill those people, I crush their, they crush their dreams. That's what I'm paid to do. That's my job. So when I perform and I achieve that, I shouldn't be celebrating it. Like, that's what I'm paid to do. I'm not paid to go have a 13 ERA. I'm paid to be good and I'm paid to be consistently good. And so the only time that I really yell on the mound, one is if uh, somebody's got a problem and they want to potentially handle it. But two, if, uh, if my players make a crazy play or they make a good play, I start yelling and beating on my chest. Uh, there is nothing that fires me up more than when my players and my team make a good play behind me. That's the only time you'll really see me scream. Who were some of the some of the guys like in Lakewood or the GCL when you were playing in 2019 that were like really impressive defenders that you can remember seeing a play they made and you're like, this is not like college at all, and you you got you got pumped up for it. Oh, Peltier. Okay, so I had four wins that year, and Peltier was involved in every single one of them. Um, he made a couple of diving catches for me and extra innings. Louis Garcia. Oh, my gosh. That, you hit anything at that kid, and, and he's going to catch it. And Guzman. And then Seth freaking Lancaster. I mean, there would be times where I would throw a changeup, and I would accidentally hang this changeup. And in slow motion, I would just see Seth's life ending because I could tell that they were about to pull this ball 7,000 miles per hour and they would. And Seth would just go boop, catch it every single time. Same thing with Louie. Louie saved me in extra innings. Guzman saved me in extra innings. I mean, everybody, right? Like, but Louie and Guzman were, you weren't getting a, a single thing past those guys. Those guys were the Mario brothers, the dynamic duo. Like they were absolute units in the infield to ask more about the guys that you played with uh you, you were talking earlier about how people would blast music in the hotel at 3 or 4 a.m who had the worst 4 a.m music playlist that drove you the most crazy oh man Aparicio. i'm sorry Aparicio. i i'm sorry that i gotta do this to you man but that guy would come out of the blue with a speaker that was like $50,000 in the size of a house and then just play like the same song 16 times over again. Like, I'm not kidding. Like the same exact song over and over and over and over at just the worst timings. I mean, there were times he would play it in the bullpen. He would play the song in the bullpen, dude. What are we even doing? We're playing a game and he'd be focused on the song. He'd legitimately be focused on the song. And, like, if somebody would try to talk to him, he'd be like, hey, Poppy, Poppy, shh, shh, music, music. And he would play the same song and do that every day. And that song eventually was just like, it was like that noise that he makes uh, in Dumb and Dumber. It was like that scene, but over and over again. Well, was it a good song at least? It was at first, yeah. I mean, they're all good yeah. songs until you hear them for an yeah. hour and a half. <laughs> what was it? What's it like being in a pro bullpen during during a game? Is it fun, good time, other than when people are blasting the same song over and over? Oh, man, it, it is a blast, except for when you play at some of these fields to where for some reason they decide to put the bullpen uh, in the back of the field, and then they just put this massive sponsorship sign in front of the whole bullpen. And so you can't see the game. Like, you legitimately cannot see the game. You're just kind of sitting there talking to your buddies and you're just like, man, like, I mean, I wish we could see the game. And then you got to like sprint to the very end of the bullpen and like look through the side of this sign to even see what's going on. 
But for the most part, um, I mean, when you get a good bullpen, it's really cool because you have a bunch of kids coming up asking for baseballs, some of them polite, some of them not polite at all. And so we don't give those kids any balls. And if you're listening to this and you're a kid, say please. Because if you don't say please, I mean, there were times where I would, I would like sign orange peels or banana peels and I would give the kids who are being mean to us like a signed orange peel or like a signed banana peel. And then the kids that were being awesome, I mean, we give them a ball, right? Because they're an awesome kid with good manners. Um, or we would like give the bad kids like a signed plastic cup. <laughs> and they'd be like, what is this? It's like, well, maybe you should have been polite, dude. I mean, that's not going to get you anywhere. But being able to interact with those kids and answer questions for families that might have questions uh, is pretty awesome. You get the occasional heckler, but eventually they run out of breath and can't yell anymore. So it really doesn't matter. Do you prefer a bullpen like in the outfield or kind of on the uh, like on the field in foul territory, like beyond the outfield or in play? Oh, beyond the outfield. Absolutely. Beyond the outfield. Um, the infield ones can get sketchy just because people can throw stuff at you. Uh, more people are going to come talk to you. And at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I do want to talk to you guys, but I'm kind of doing my job right now. Um, and so just being tucked away in that little bullpen corner is definitely nice uh, because when you're on the field, I mean, you could just have a missile hit at you from nowhere. And so there, there's a lot of things. And then plus, not to mention, I mean, let's be real. Somebody's going to sail a ball. Somebody is going to completely overthrow the catcher. And in all reality, at the, at the lower levels, that's probably going to happen like if you have seven pitchers, that's probably going to happen about 10 times. And I mean, I've done it too. I think I did it once, but it's just like that stops the game. And then now you got your coach looking down at you guys yelling at you because nobody, nobody is throwing all the balls to the catcher. They're throwing them to the catcher. That's 200 feet away instead. Uh, so I would much rather prefer a cubby rather than being on the field. Is there a favorite strikeout or moment or play from your career or from anything that you've done on the baseball field that sticks out as like a personal favorite? Yeah. Um, so one of them, and me and me and Layman talk about this all the time, Taylor Layman. Uh, so like I said, there's the second version of Albertus, right? Like I get pretty fired up and, and not a lot of people know that when I'm in this mode, like you don't talk to me, you just don't talk to me. You just leave me alone because not in, I'm not in a normal state of mind. And I go out there in my first inning and we're in, I can't remember where we are, but I go in there my first inning and I only struck one out and he was like, were you soft? You're only going to strike out one guy? Oh, I just started yelling. <laughs> I just started yelling at him. And I was like, shut up. Started saying some other choice words. And uh, I went out the next inning, and, and I ended up striking out the side and walking back in the dugout after and yelling at him. And uh, we talk about it all the time and laugh about it because, uh, I mean, yeah, I was mad, but, like, there's going to be those moments. And – and it's just funny to look back at it, too, because, uh, I mean, they understand, too. Like, if I would have done that in, in a college or somewhere else, people aren't really understanding of somebody being in that state of mind. But he got it, and he started laughing, blah, 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 went out and struck out the side. And, and that was an awesome moment because it, it kind of was like a reassurance to me of, like, these guys understand. These guys get it. These aren't just average human beings. These people have feel of situations. And then my second favorite moment was we were in Hagerstown. Jiminy Christmas. We're in Hagerstown, and it's the last game of the year, uh, the very last game. And I got the last inning of the entire season. And I feel terrible. I mean, I don't feel very good. Everybody's checked out. and. 
but I don't care. Like I'm ready to go crush people. And I go into the game and I threw the last inning of the last game of my first year of professional baseball. So I checked off personally my first year and, and that feeling and getting that ball um, was actually awesome because it was like, I was finally on the road that I've dreamt of for so long. And I'm finally making progress towards this dream that I've wanted to fulfill my entire life. And I personally got to be the person that put an end on the season. And there was no other, there's no other feeling like that. And I actually ended up keeping that ball and signing it for myself. And somebody broke into my car and stole it. Oof. That yeah. Oof. When was when was that like shortly after? Um. Yeah. I I was in Kansas City visiting some people and somebody broke into my car and they stole my bag, the ball that I had signed, my shoes, but they left all my plows and my gloves. So whoever stole that stuff, thank you for at least having a little bit of feel because. <laughs> $100 supplies and, and a $200, $300 glove, oh, that would have been a yikes. But <laughs> they, was, they didn't. They didn't steal the most important things. So, you know, you mentioned how you wrapped up that last season that you pitched in. What, do you, what would you say is next for you? Like the, this next season that you're going to pitch, what's next? Well, first I got I to gotta get healthy. Um, that's most important, right? Is I mean, I already feel healthy. I'm already throwing like I'm healthy, but to make sure that I'm up to all standards of what I need to do. And then from then on out, it's just doing the same thing. Um, just going out there and performing. And that's going to be my only focus. Wherever they decide to send me, whatever they decide to do, uh, doesn't really matter to me because as long as I'm undeniably good and do everything that I need to do, take care of the things that I need to take care of and don't blow up on idiots on Twitter, um, I'm going to be in good standing. Um, so I just got to make sure that I just keep going down that route. And uh, that's really it, right? Um, it's just be so undeniably good that they can't tell me no. What about off the field too? Give me like a, a five-year when you, if you were to look back in five years, what do you think you'll have accomplished off the field over that time frame where you would say, I did good? Um, I mean, I would say uh, in five years, when I look back um, in accordance to everything that I have done, it's probably just going to feel like I'm in the same boat. Honestly, I'm still going to be trying to progress as a human being to become a better person. Um, it, it's really just going to be me reflecting and going, how did I handle these situations? Because uh, if I want to do what I want to do to help people across the world, that's going to be so much more significantly difficult than anything that I could ever do baseball related. So I would say that right now I'm building out, uh, stamina and endurance to take on things that seem so out of reach that a person can't handle them. Um, so I think in five years, honestly, I think in five years, I'll still be on a big league field playing. <laughs> I think that I'll be around for a while. I mean, I know that's personal bias, but if I don't make it to the big leagues and play for a, a decent amount of time, then that's just because I screwed it up, not because of anybody else. Uh, it was because of me, because I have the stuff. Uh, I'm good enough. And if I have to go choke some choke slam somebody for us to win a game, I'm sprinting off the mound. Like, you're just not going to be able to stop me. And so in five years, I think that we'll probably be talking on this podcast again in all reality. What do you what do you think it'll feel like once you get healthy this season um, whether it's right at the start of minor league season or they give you a little more time to get yourself healthy, whatever it is, the next time you're on a professional field throwing a pitch in a real game, what do you think that is going to feel like for you considering, you know, how the last year or so has gone? Um, it's just going to be that adrenaline rush again. And I, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's going to be like – 
lower quality, but it's just going to be the same thing that I experience going from driveline back into baseball. Like I'll have one, two, three games to where my adrenaline will be pumping through the roof and it will feel foreign. Um, but from then on, it's just going to be smooth sailing. Uh, but I tell you what, I tell you what, um, those two years that I just spent facing adversity, uh, that's going to play into really just me being more intense and a better player and cherishing these opportunities that I have because I, I thought that we were going to be fine in 2020. And I thought that I was going to be in the big leagues by 2021, but life happens. And so we plan accordingly. But it's just going to be like when I was in the GCL, warming up to go in my first game, and Josh Boniface staring at me from this top little thing that people walk around in in our complex, just staring through my soul. It's just going to be that feeling, that same exact feeling of, um, all right, yeah, we're here. Like, we're for sure here now. So let's go do this thing. And then once you get rid of those nerves, those and whatever you want to call it, it, it kind of just goes away for good. And you become desensitized to it. Last thing before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you feel like you need you should you wanted to add about what who you are as a person and what makes you tick on the field, off the field, whatever? Uh, your journey that's gotten you here, anything that has been unsaid. Yeah, I would like to give uh, the first thing that comes to mind is I would like to give some advice to people who are about to take uh, this path of playing any type of professional sport and competing for a spot. Um, so honestly, personally, the only reason that I still think that I'm around with the Phillies organization or any organization is because I was a good teammate and I helped everybody that I could on my team because of the knowledge that I had learned from driveline. Um, and so when you go play for these professional teams, a lot of people are going to tell you that you're competing against your teammates, that you're competing against the guy to your left and to your right for a spot. I just don't believe that's true. You're competing against yourself. It's only you. You're competing against yourself because nobody has their name on that spot. The only person that gets that spot is the person who earns it. And if you really want to build something and you want to be a part of something great, you want to win a World Series, you have to help your teammates. They can't, they can't be your enemies. They have to be your allies. They have to be your brothers in arms. Um, and the more that you get sucked into this mindset that you're competing against these people, the more you're going to ruin relationships, the less people are going to want to play behind you because they can sense that you're doing it for yourself. And so when you take this journey, the best thing that I could recommend to you is have fun, uh, do what you got to do and don't do what you don't have to do and take care of your boys, seriously, because you're going to be friends with these people till the day that you die. And so to think that that person is trying to take your spot when we're all trying to make it is asinine because there's no reason those 10, 15 people can't make it to the big leagues as well. And so go out there, crush souls, be a good person and don't get caught up in yourself because you can't win a ring by yourself. You can't do anything cool by yourself. You need a lot of other guys. So always make sure that you're taking care of those people around you. Albertus, would you like to plug your Twitter or anything else that people should follow you? Yeah. If you guys want to follow my Twitter, uh, I think it's at Albertus. Honestly, I'm not really sure what it is. <laughs> to be fair, but just look up my name and I'm sure you'll find me because, I mean, there's only one Albertus Falbarber the fourth. It's at Albertus the fourth, at Albertus IV. I just looked it up. So everybody, awesome. everybody Thank listening, so no problem. Everybody listening, go follow Albertus Barber the fourth on Twitter. You know, you can pay attention to his playing career. He's in the Philly system. Albertus, thanks for hopping on, man. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, sorry if I talked a little bit too much, but uh, this this was definitely an awesome opportunity for me. And thank you guys so much for taking time out of your days, which I know are probably super busy to have me on your show. No problem. Thanks again. Nathan, you have anything you want to add? 
Oh, this was this was awesome. Thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, it, I feel like we could go on for three more hours if we had the time. But thanks, so thanks again. This was this was really cool. All right, yeah, everyone. We'll meet back. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We'll definitely have Albertus on at some point again. Everyone, thank you for listening. Go follow Albertus on Twitter. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.